Visionary Media. There's this expression I love to to quote, which is one teaches to learn. When I talk to young people, people who are creative entrepreneurs, when I say young, not a... This is something I love to do and I'd like to do it more because it's very thrilling to, to be able to help someone. But you also learn so much about yourself and the way you think and your creative process when you share it with someone else. I don't get into the proof. Try not to prove anything. Try not to. The, the time in which you prove is when they ask you, tell me the three clients you've worked with. Don't tell them ahead of time. So we can take a non-believer and make him a believer in five minutes. So you want to reduce the complex down to very simple things. If you have a big idea to teach, you just need to keep breaking down big ideas into five components. And then the five components, you're breaking down into five components until it becomes very easy. To my memory, this video could have been the very first encounter I had with Chris Doe. Why do you want to know my hourly rate? I guess I want to know what I, where my $18,000 is going. But does that mean if I work less hours, I should charge you less? Yeah. So if I go over those hours, I should charge you more? Sure. Really? Yeah. Okay, so you're saying to me, you value this logo taking longer rather than shorter. So it means if I just tell you it took me four months to work on it, you will now owe me $36,000. If it's in my budget and if I think you're worth it, but I would also ask why would it take that long to make that logo? As a creative just starting my own business, it was fireworks in my mind and quite refreshing to hear this wisdom from him. I want to put a lot of effort into it. But I could hire somebody else who would charge me the same rate, but do it quicker. So you value time over money then? Sure. As a business okay. person, yeah. So here's the deal. I work really fast. I can come up with a logo, but I'm being punished for me being efficient and really good. You understand the logic doesn't work now? Sure. That's the problem. So if I could do a logo for you right now and you love it in five minutes, are you saying it's worth less than 18 or is it worth more now? It's worth more. So charging by the hour punishes me for being good. It was bold and something a creative like me really wanted to improve on. I'm talking about business acumen. But as I consumed more of his content, I did not just find out about how to be a better creative entrepreneur, but many other things that would help me grow as a person. Welcome back to The Visionary Podcast, nominated for the Best Business, Science, and Tech Podcast at the Asian Podcast Festival Awards 2022. I'm so glad to have you back on the show where we dive into the inspiring journeys of thought leaders, coaches, and experts in life and business. I'm your host, BJ chong Now, before we begin, please make sure to follow our socials on Facebook and Instagram. And if you enjoy this show, engage with us and tell us at tvp at visionarymedia.com. We always love to hear from you. Today, we talk about what is the key to success for creative entrepreneurs. Is it honing our craft or acquiring essential business, critical thinking, and communication skills? Discover the surprising answer as we dive into the inspiring journey of an Emmy Award-winning designer and thought leader, Chris Doe. This episode is dedicated to all of you creative entrepreneurs out there, as we aim to ignite your passion and propel you to reach new heights. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Chris Doe. I'm so happy to have you on our show. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's, it just seems like yesterday. I met Chris Doe last 2022 at the Lika Creative Entrepreneur Summit held here in Manila, Philippines. Chris Doe is an Emmy Award-winning designer, director, CEO, and chief strategist of Blind. He is the founder of The Future, an online education platform with a mission to teach 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. 
Chris has taught design for over 15 years at Art Center College of Design and Otis College of Art and Design. He has given talks and workshops on various topics, including sales, branding, and entrepreneurship. His firm's work has been recognized by prestigious organizations such as the Emmys, Clio, and Communication Arts. You said that your mission is to help a billion people make a living doing what they love. So do you love what you do every single day? And what do you do on days that you sometimes don't? I do love what I do every single day. Uh, I think the first part of my career was about making sure I can improve that I have a skill that's marketable Mm -hmm. and to build a company and to get people, uh, to employ people and have them work with me. And that was pretty good. And then the second part to that career was making sure I could earn enough money to raise a family and live a certain lifestyle that I wanted for my wife and for my children to be able to provide for them. And once that was met, financially speaking, that I thought I had made enough money, then you kind of get into that space where you ask yourself, beyond money, why do I exist? These larger kind of existential questions. And it starts to make you look for something more. And I've always loved teaching. I just couldn't find a good business model that made sense. And it seemed like I had to volunteer and give away my time, which is antithetical to the kinds of things that I believe and the things that I try and teach people. If you do something valuable, it should be valued at a certain price. And it's once I started to figure out um, using open social networks and platforms like YouTube and Instagram and LinkedIn, I found my happy place. I could teach at scale, reach a lot of people, hopefully make the kind of impact that you want to have, leave the place earth better than the way you found it. And that's why I'm so connected to teaching. So I don't imagine that there's a second job after this. This is it for me. Whether I make a lot of money or no money at all, this is what I'm going to do. During his time in the undergraduate program at the Art Center, he noticed something interesting. He realized that he could understand different ideas faster than some of his classmates. It seemed strange to him that even though they were at the same level in school, and some of them were even older, they would ask him to give feedback on their work before class just a few weeks into the program. And I would look at the work and I would see some obvious areas for improvement. And I would try my best to help them. And so I developed a little bit of a reputation amongst my friends that I have an eye for design and I can articulate it. And this is just me relating to my, my fellow classmates, trying to help and trying to share what it is that I know so that we can all grow together. It's something that I think students do for each other. Mm-hmm. And I start to realize this is something I love to do and I'd like to do it more because it's very thrilling to, to be able to help someone. But you also learn so much about yourself and the way you think and your creative process when you share it with someone else. Mm-hmm. There's this expression I love to, to, to quote, which is one teaches to learn. Mm-hmm. And this idea that your, your students will teach you more than you, you can ever hope to teach them. It's not that they're literally teaching you something, but the act of articulating your ideas and sharing it with another person forces you to be able to, to be clear about your thought process and to be more efficient at how you think and process information. And so I, I think that's the reward. That's the moment that I realized this is something that I want to do. And he made a promise to himself as he neared at the end of his schooling. He decided that he would wait until he had achieved recognition before venturing into teaching. His theory was based on a simple idea. When someone teaches you something, how much can you really remember? Maybe 20 or 40% if you're a great student, as he says. So he believed that if he started teaching right away, he would only be able to share half of what he had learned or what his teachers had taught him. And if we do this in enough times, a copy of a copy of a copy starts to fall apart. 
That's why I made a rule. Like I want to go out and I need to learn new things, things I didn't learn in school to make up for that 50% deficit. And I'm being generous to myself because I don't think I retained 50% of what was taught to me. Mm-hmm. So five years after graduation, I came back and I taught. And it was the thing that I really needed in my life at that moment in time. And it, it gave me a, a renewed sense of hope and, and confidence I didn't have before. Confidence in that what I know is valuable to people. And hope in that when you work with young people, they're not jaded and bitter um, people like they're not bitter and jaded in that they think nothing new can be done. They're full of hope and enthusiasm. And some of that rubs off on you. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure it's safe to say that you're also very patient because as an educator, you also have to have that quality, right? I'm not that patient. Really? <laughs> no, I mean, really? yeah, I'm not, I'm not really that patient. It's like, Hey, here's a concept. Mm-hmm. And now I'll explain it to you four or five different ways. But if you keep asking me the same question mm-hmm. and you keep pushing on the same wall, then I'm like, mm, maybe you don't get this and maybe this is not right for you. Mm-hmm. I'm okay there too. I'd like to teach in a style that I've described as full contact teaching. There's no light sparring here. If, if we want to learn, we have to learn how to get uncomfortable with, with each other. And you and I both have to build like a thicker skin, be more resilient to negative feedback and criticism. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, we can learn something. We need to be able to be truthful and honest to each other. You mentioned thick skin. I also wanted to ask you something related to that. Because when I was doing my research, you know, I came across this Reddit post. And then, you know, along with the research, I saw a video of you also featuring that that comment. So you seem to know how to handle haters pretty well. Were you always thick-skinned or was there any time when a troll really pushed your button? I, I don't think many people are born thick-skinned. I think it's something you develop uh, through conditioning. And the more you expose yourself to criticism, the less it's going to bother you. You, you learn how to cope and overcome these things. So growing up, I'm, I'm an Asian-American, first-generation immigrant. Being Vietnamese, he faced his fair share of challenges assimilating into a predominantly white European culture in America. There were moments when he found himself as the sole Asian individual in a given setting, where curious gazes from others made him feel like an alien from another planet. They would bombard him with inquiries about his cultural practices and habits, asking what he ate, how he lived, and even what he smelled like. These encounters left him feeling different and compelled to explain the customs and way of life that were unique to his home. I'm like, I'm just like you. We eat little different things. We speak a different language, but we're all human. And so I was the constant target for for bullies. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned to stand up for myself, even though physically I'm much smaller. I'm not physically strong and, and as tall and as big and muscular as these other boys were. But I learned something from my older brother. He said that bullies want to find an easy target. If you make yourself not an easy target, they'll leave you alone. And, and I don't know if you know this about Vietnamese culture, but we, 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 we like to fight for whatever reason, even if we think the odds are against us. And so the odds have been against me for a long time. And so you, you either survive that mm-hmm. childhood or you become some shallow version of yourself. And I had to stand up for myself and get into physical fistfights with people just so that they would leave me alone. But that means that they would leave me alone, but someone else is going to come up and, and throw a racial slur at you. Somebody that doesn't even know you. Something, yeah, I've never even done anything to you for you to even hate me this way. 
And so you build up that kind of conditioning and you take it with you. And I, I think through adversity, we become much more resilient. Some of us do, not all of us, obviously. Yes. Um, so uh, you are an award-winning um, de uh, designer. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to imagine like it's a very competitive industry. So how was that journey like? Uh, you know, when you won, until you won an Emmy? Um, I may be very lucky in that I, um, maybe by coincidence or by fate, wound up at one of the top design schools in the country. And also by luck or by fate, I, I happened to pick up design principles pretty quickly. And so I developed a lot of self-confidence as I was going through school and learning about the rules of typography, learning how to use different colors and materials and composition. And I felt really confident about that. When I got out of school, I was able to apply what I knew and I could see that I was at or above the levels of people that I was working with. And so I was never short of confidence and belief in my ability to design. I was not confident in other areas, but design I knew. So I wasn't really th sitting there thinking to myself, I need to win these awards to validate myself. The awards were kind of a game, a game to see if, if I can win that award. And as it turns out, most of the awards that we submitted our work to, we were able to pick up. We would win sometimes gold, silver, or bronze, but we would almost always win a statue or certificate or something. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple that were elusive. One was ID Magazine, which is no longer in circulation anymore, but we were featured in ID Magazine. So I'm like, check that. Communication Arts, Type Design Club, Typographies. What is it? No, I'm sorry. Type Directors Club. We won a bunch of awards. We're featured in many books and how and print mm -hmm. um, a bunch of different magazines. So the one that was elusive to me was the Emmy because we made commercials and music videos and the Emmys are for TV work, for network television. And so one of my office managers comes up to me one day and says, Chris, do you want to win an Emmy? I'm like, yeah, but we don't qualify. And she goes, leave that up to me. So she goes through the entire submission requirements and finds the one category that she thinks we're qualified for, which is individual achievement in art direction and design. And you could submit anything. And it's a peer-reviewed thing, meaning if the peer group says you deserve an award, you just get one. And it's pretty awesome. So she submitted it. I didn't think anything about it. And then we get a notification saying Chris should attend the award show. We aren't saying anything, but he should really attend. Wow. And so that's code word for you're going to win an award, you better show. <laughs> up right mm -hmm. yeah and so i won an emmy and then later on we won another one for a different music video that we produce wow but i have to say it's not like i was waiting all my life to win that mm -hmm. and it wasn't like winning it opened all kinds of doors of opportunities but it is the most recognizable award that i have that a lay person a non-industry person would recognize and know and that's why oftentimes when i'm introduced it says emmy award-winning designer other than design Is there anything else that you're really good at? Other than design? Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty good at drawing. Mm -hmm. Like I thought in another life, had I focused more on my life drawing skills, I could have been a comic book artist. And that was my initial love, but I wasn't as focused and disciplined in that. So I wound up choosing graphic design instead. I think I am a pretty good communicator. Mm -hmm. I'm a good teacher. You are. Um, I enjoy lots of different things. I can't say that I'm good at, but there's lots of things that I'm interested in. I think I'm a pretty good fisherman. An angler. <laughs> What do you think is the most common problem of creatives? So the most common problems with creatives is they think that by honing their craft that they're going to get more opportunities. But instead, what they need to do is they need to acquire business skills. They need to acquire critical thinking skills and communication skills. And I think the current education model is to teach people more craft. 
and ignore these other three things that I just mentioned. I think a healthier program should integrate these things, maybe not at a 50-50 level, but something close to that. Because I think in the 21st century, creatives, designers can have an important role within the functions of business. But what we don't learn is we don't learn what it means to be in a business and to run a business. So that's the challenge. How about when it comes to mindset? What's one problem a lot of creatives usually deal with when it comes to mindset? I would say probably imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Thinking that you don't have any skills, that what you do isn't valuable or good enough. According to psychologytoday.com, people who struggle with imposter syndrome believe that they are undeserving of their achievements and the high esteem in which they are in fact generally held. They feel that they aren't as competent or intelligent as others might think, and that soon enough, people will discover the truth about them. On the other hand, Skillshare.com says that it's natural for individuals, including accomplished artists, to experience occasional insecurity and imposter syndrome. This self-doubt can be overcome with time and effort. Creative imposter syndrome is particularly challenging for artists, as there is no clear measure of success in artistic fields. Doubts about worthiness and concerns about being ordinary or undeserving of recognition can undermine confidence. They also emphasize the need to overcome these thoughts and recognize our own accomplishments. And when you start a conversation like that, with that self-belief, that self-story, then you're opening yourself up to be taken advantage of. And I see it that's pretty prevalent within the creative community. And I see it especially within developing countries like the Philippines. When you're in a smaller market, you start to accept a self-imposed narrative that what you do isn't as valuable as a somebody who's living in America or, or in London. And you start to accept those conditions in your life. And I just refuse to say that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Most creatives also that I know are perfectionists. I am too as well. Are you? No, I'm not. I have a high attention to detail, have very high standards, but I think oftentimes mm -hmm. perfectionism is a strategy to avoid something. So it's an avoidance strategy. Wikipedia defines perfectionism as a psychological trait characterized by an individual's strong desire to achieve flawlessness and perfection. It involves critical self-evaluations and concerns about how others perceive them. According to OneGranary.com, 82% of respondents feel their projects are never perfect and 98% view perfectionism as harmful rather than helpful. The combination of creativity and perfectionism poses challenges for young talents in the industry. Perfectionism, characterized by the pursuit of flawlessness and critical self-evaluation, often leads to destructive self-doubt. Creative perfectionists tend to compare their work to unrealistic standards, hindering their ability to be innovative. The pressure of social media worsens these issues, causing mental health problems and a constant fear of negative evaluation. So if I keep working on something because it's not perfect yet, then that means the world will never be able to see it and therefore they cannot critique it. And sometimes what we don't do is we don't publish and we don't produce something because if we're actually able to have objective data that our image of ourselves isn't aligned to this objective data, it would be soul crushing. 
So if I believe I'm a really good hand lettering artist and I, I tell my friends, oh, if I could have been really good if I tried and if I applied, and we never actually make anything, then that fantasy, that narrative that we have in our head never has to be challenged and it never is unproven or disproved. And so I think that's why a lot of people cling on to this idea of perfectionism. Very rarely is perfectionism a healthy thing. Here's another form of perfectionism that I think we need to avoid. Mm-hmm. I have, um, for a period of time when I was running my creative design company, a creative director who had a hard time making decisions. And w- what they did was they would always, let, nah, let's try and move a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, a one pixel higher. <laughs> and in the big scheme of things, none of that really matters. It doesn't. It's like, is there a good idea? Is the composition solid? Is it communicating and hitting the client objectives? If that's fine, what is shifting quite literally one pixel to the left or to the right going to do? It's not going to do anything. And so again, this is under this umbrella of perfectionism and we champion it. We hold up some of our design heroes when they talk about their obsessive compulsive Mm. way of looking at the world. And in very few instances, does it really matter? The one instance that I can think of right now is if you're designing a typeface. The level of detail and craftsmanship that you need to put into designing a great typeface that's going to withstand the test of time is needed. And it's the reason why is because once you create this thing, it's going to be used thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of times. And you're not going to look back and say, oh, I wish that curve, I, I made it a little bit smoother and there's a little kink in it. Now, every time I see it, I'm reminded of, Mm-hmm. that I didn't spend enough time working on it. Mm-hmm. So in some instances, if you're, if you're building tools that, that aren't easily changed or updated, I would say you do need to be a perfectionist. So for the most part, it's really damaging to be a perfectionist. I think so. I think we learn so much more by doing things and then looking back on the work that we did and reflecting and saying, what did I do well? What could I do better? And what did I learn from this? Mm-hmm. And and that's been part of my kind of life energy and force. If you look at our YouTube channel and and many of my social posts, many of them are flawed. I make mistakes all the time. Really? There are things like typos. Oh yeah, there's typos. There's little glitches where the edges of an image doesn't line up perfectly with the previous frame. Mm-hmm. So when you swipe through, it's misaligned by like three or five pixels because I wasn't good at math at that moment. I don't know why. So when I put that out, the the designer obsessive person says, oh, take it down, repost it, make it perfect. But this other person in me says, you know what? We're all human. It'll be okay. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to say that three pixels don't matter when someone else is doing it. When I do it, I got to go back and undo it. And so unless there's a glaring mistake where the order of the slides are in incorrect, I'm not going to go back and remove it and try to fix it. I'll just fix it on my computer. So if I were to republish it or reuse it in the next, the next go around, then I won't forget that there was a mistake there. Coming up after the break, Chris will reveal the secrets behind building the right team and finding the perfect collaborators. He'll also share the fascinating story of how the future, his renowned creative education platform, was brought to life. Stay tuned for valuable insights and inspiration on creating your own successful creative venture. Are you a coach or a thought leader with a story to share? Do you have a unique perspective that has helped you make a profound impact in your field? Then the Visionary Podcast wants you. Join us for our special series on coaches and thought leaders in Season 2 of the Visionary Podcast. 
This series is all about exploring the transformative power of coaching and mentorship through the stories and insights of our guests. We're looking for coaches, thought leaders, and experts who want to share their journey, how they overcame challenges, and the lessons they learned along the way. Don't miss this opportunity to showcase your unique perspective and approach and to make a difference in the lives of our listeners. So what are you waiting for? Drop us a line at tvp at visionarymedia.com with the subject, I am a visionary. You can also post on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram using the hashtag, I am a visionary. That's visionary spelled V-I-S-I-O-N-E-R-I. We are passing you the microphone so you can make a difference with a Visionary Podcast special series on coaches and thought leaders. Join us in Season 2 and let's explore the power of coaching and thought leadership together. Welcome back. In the next segment, we'll continue our conversation with Chris Doe as we explore the remarkable story of how the future was built. Discover valuable insights on building a successful creative venture and advice for fellow introverts from the loud introvert himself. And the Future Pro Group felt like an answer to all my prayers. The group has contributed a lot towards helping me see my strengths and making me more confident. Huge projects and big clients no longer make me anxious because I know that all the resources and people I need to help and support me are right here in this group. After running my agency for what was coming up to 12 years, I felt I hit a ceiling in terms of not only revenue growth, but also personal growth, which is around about the same time I came across the YouTube, um, the future YouTube channel. And the content on the YouTube channel gave me so many ideas of how to overcome some of the challenges I faced then. And I think that's where I first heard about the pro group, which really piqued my interest. And the thing that really appealed to me was, I guess, the idea of hundreds of people from all around the world that wanted to level up in the same way I wanted to level up. Uh, and that really appealed to me. Why did you think about forming the future group, the future program? Um, it, it wasn't even my idea. Initially, it was my former business partner, Jose's idea. According to Christo, he didn't originally come up with the idea for the future group. It was actually his former business partner, Jose. Jose suggested it as a free community for customers. However, Chris realized that the free and public nature of the group didn't create the desired level of engagement and commitment. After parting ways with Jose, Chris formed a new group with a membership fee, offering privacy and a safe space for entrepreneurs to share their challenges and receive support. This approach aimed to foster a stronger sense of commitment and provide a more valuable user experience. If you are within the group, this created, in my opinion, a safe space for people to share their trials and tribulations, uh, internal struggles, uh, client problems and objections in an open format so that they feel like they can get the support. Mm -hmm. One of the things we often say, especially in our marketing materials, is that entrepreneurship is a lonely endeavor. It's a lonely pursuit. When you're the boss, who do you talk to if you're making the right or wrong decisions and you need some guidance there? There aren't a lot of places that you can go. I've always wanted this for myself. And so I decided to create a group in the community where people can have that kind of dialogue and that support from fellow entrepreneurs. 
you know, when it comes to your business, Chris, I mean, you're teaching creatives to to make a living out of what they love to do. Now, I want to ask, how do you find the best people to work with you? Um, I think if you make enough content, those people will find you. Mm-hmm. And so they are attracted to you and you're attracted to them. And it's a natural thing. It's also one of the reasons why I think more of us in the creative community should publish content and to host rooms and conversations with people so that people get to learn about who you are, the person behind the work. And this is really important. In Chris's early career, the focus was solely on the work. They aimed to attract passionate individuals who could produce exceptional results. However, it became clear that some of these people didn't share the company's core values. Although they weren't necessarily bad individuals, they didn't fit well within the team. It took Chris a while to realize this and make the necessary adjustments for a better alignment between the work and the people involved. There was a period in time when I would show up to work a company that I owned and that I didn't even want to be there anymore. Mm. I would park my car and sit in there and just think like, oh, I I hope I don't see this person here today because it's just draining my energy. They're energy vampires, right? Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, muster up enough energy, get out of my car, walk up the stairway and sit in my room and close the door. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of unhappy about this. So I talked to my business coach and said, hey, what is wrong? How come I just don't want to be here anymore? And he says, it's the problem is we let anybody in the door that has talent and a lot of talented people and they, they act and behave and think a certain way that they get to make the rules and they create a lot of drama and chaos for you. And as long as I've known you, that's not something that you, you like around you. Mm -hmm. I said, you're right. So what do I have to do? He said, well, you have to figure out what your core values are. And then you want to hire people who share those core values. So it was a six to eight month long um, introspective period of my time. Uh, it was a six to eight month long introspective period of my life where I had to figure out, well, who am I? What are my values, my beliefs? What can be codified and shared with others? And it happened that I was reading this book called Delivering Happiness by the late Tony Shea. And he shared why culture and core values are so important. And essentially, I just lifted the values that he wrote in this book. I, I, I rationalized, he saw. Harvard educated person. He's running a billion dollar company. I think he has a clue on this. Mm -hmm. So we just used his core values and modified some of them to fit our industry and reflect me personally. Mm -hmm. And then we went through a year and a half long period of weeding out people and hiring people specifically who shared our core values. You describe yourself as a loud introvert. So how can we make it even easier for us introverts to really show up and you know, show our vulnerability through content? The first question is, how do we make it easier for introverts to be in social situations, whether online or in real life? And I'm going to tell you something, mm. and it's maybe it's not going to be popular, but it's not going to be easy. It's not meant to be easy. Easy things are easily attained and not valuable. And I think it's about us embracing that life is difficult, that it's going to require hard work, and there's some suffering involved. I think when we embrace that, I think we're going to be a lot happier. So I try to make it in in my life to move towards the things that create friction for me that are uncomfortable. And that's where the real growth is. So I think we have to get rid of this mindset that things are supposed to be easy. Things are supposed to be hard. That's why it's worth having. And when you achieve it, it's a real accomplishment that you can be proud of. 
there are some steps, some practical steps that you can take as an introvert to show up. First dose recommendation, practicing small talk and conversing with strangers to overcome the fear of social interactions. And I think it's going to rewire your system not to be afraid of talking to people and hearing your voice and seeing that you have ideas to contribute, that you can serve people better if you're not invisible. And it's a trick that I learned from my older brother. He was going through a divorce and he had been out of the dating circle for a long time. And we were in Las Vegas together and we were riding down the elevator and there were two young girls, in, two young women in, in the elevator with us. And he started talking to them about their toenail polish because mm-hmm. <laughs> they were wearing flip-flops and they were getting ready to go to the pool, I think. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And I turned to him like, hey man, aren't they a little bit young? He goes, hey dummy, <laughs> I'm practicing. And I didn't believe him. I was like a little skeptical. It's like, are you sure you're practicing? What are you practicing? But it turns out on our flight home, we're at the airport and there's like a fast food place and I'm paying for the food and he's got the tray and he's getting our table. And by the time I bring the food over or whatever, I can't remember, he was talking to this older couple, Mm -hmm. an older married couple, and he was just fascinated by them. And so I, I got a powerful lesson that day that, we can have conversations with people just because we need to practice learning how to be social with people. And I started doing that. I started to talk to our server. I talked to the person behind the cashier. I would talk to random people that were tourists in Santa Monica and say, are you lost? Are you looking for something? Can I help you? And that started to rewire my nervous system to say like, you know what? This is not so horrible. And what you do is once you quote unquote master this skill, you start to expand where you do this and it, and it becomes difficult again. Mm-hmm. But now you're leveling up. So for me, I still struggle with being in social situations like a, at a bar or a party where I don't know anybody. And most recently, I was at Adobe Max. I was at this insider special event. Mm-hmm. I didn't know a single person there. I walked in there and there were like, I think about 30 people. And the host says, hey, Chris, welcome. Glad you could make it. I'm cool. So I'm like, um, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. So I went to the to the bar and got a like a sparkling water and I turned around and like, where do I go? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And my instinct is to run out of that bar and just go back to my hotel or go back to my house. But instead I just stood there and I'm like, you know what? We're just gonna get comfortable with just standing here. I don't know how to start conversations with people, especially because there are already groups formed, little clicks. I don't know what to do. So I just stood there and I waited. And eventually, about 10 minutes later. Someone walked up to me and said, hey, do I know you? I'm like, no, but I'd like to get to know you. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we can have conversation and it feels much more comfortable. And so if we can practice these small actions to rewire our brain that this is okay, I think we can share our, our true value with the world and be seen and heard. I like what you said, like rewiring our beliefs, right? So we have to do something, we start doing something uncomfortable to change that belief. Now, when it comes to showing up ourselves online, doing content, how much is too much? You know, like, yes. do you know what I mean? Like, how much should I share mm-hmm. when it comes to vulnerability? What's up, Stats? Hi, Jonah. Okay, entertain me. While watching the Netflix series Stutz, Chris is intrigued by a conversation between psychotherapist Dr. Stutz and producer Jonah Hill. They discuss the idea that real confidence stems from recognizing the connection 
between vulnerability and strength. I'm talking about people being vulnerable and working on their problems and not be vulnerable myself. You can't move forward without being vulnerable. Chris reflects on how people tend to hide their vulnerabilities and only emphasize their strengths, leading to a question about how we perceive individuals who never acknowledge their struggles. Do we think these are supremely confident people? Probably not. Mm. We start to tell ourselves a different story. We say from the observer's point of view, that maybe they're covering up something. Yeah. That their life can't be that perfect. That they're up to something. We get really suspicious about people like this. Anne Hathaway, this beautiful actress, she's got great genetics and she's seemingly always elegant and just beautiful all the time. She gets a lot of haters because she seems to be perfect. Like too perfect. Mm -hmm. And it bothers us. Like there must be some skeleton that's within the closet. Let's take a different type of person. A person who shows up online says, sometimes I do great things and sometimes I struggle to get out of bed. Mm. And they talk about not only their success, but their failures. And then the question I have for you and your audience is, what do we think of these people? We probably think, my God, they're really confident. First of all, they just don't care what we think. They're so calm, relaxed, and comfortable in their own skin and are so open and transparent, they have nothing to hide. This is the story we tell ourselves. And so these are the people that we believe to have true confidence. So if you ask yourself, what are you doing when you show up online, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are you showing up to just talk about your strengths and how great your life is? Which is fine. But are you also showing up and shining a light on the darker parts of your life where you struggle? And I think this is a really important concept. So embracing vulnerability as part of strength That's where true confidence comes from. Now, when it comes to your question about how much is too much, Mm -hmm. we probably need to know what too much is. So can you expand on that concept of too much? What do you mean? (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's just you putting too much importance on the opinions of other people. Mm. So there's still some self-work that needs to be done here. Like, I think you need to show up every single day to say and be very clear with yourself objectively, this is good work. These are ideas that are healthy or these are ideas and work that's unhealthy. And if you already know that, then whatever somebody lobbies at you, lobs, I'm sorry, whatever somebody lobs at you won't shock you because you already know. So I'll give you a story and maybe this will make sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had an executive producer and every time we would pitch for a new business, it's a vicious competitive space in commercial advertising. And sometimes we would get the job and he would feel great about the team. And when we didn't get the job, he would feel really bad. And he would say, Chris, the team, they're not really giving their best effort. I said, are you sure about that? He goes, yes. I said, well, here, let's do this test. Do you know if the work is good or bad before you show it? Or do you just solely rely on the opinions of the client? He goes, no, I think I know what good work is. I said, okay. Well, as the executive producer... If you recognize the work isn't good, you should stop the train and say, hey, we need to redirect. We're missing the brief. We need more resources. I don't feel confident going in that this is going to win the work. Can you do that? He goes, of course I can. And so here it is. This is the very next big pitch that we work on. I go into his office. I say, how is the work? He says, it's excellent. I said, great. And so we would show the work to the client. They did not pick us. They picked somebody else. And now he could no longer complain. So the, the lesson here is that 
what he was doing is he was he was putting the value of the work and the quality of the work in the hands of somebody else, somebody else's opinion, not his own. And we can't control that. We we have no idea and it's super subjective and it's sometimes very, very arbitrary as to whether or not they like it or not. And now you're being uh, other directed versus self-directed. So I gave him the power back by saying, if you know good work, then look at it. If you don't, then let's not talk about it anymore. There's no two ways about this. You can't say, I know what good work is, but I'm going to rely on the opinions of our clients, right? And if you don't know what good work is and the clients say yes or no, you're just like, that's the result. You can't go back and tell the team they're not doing great work. First of all, that's super divisive. You're creating a lot of bad Mm -hmm. feelings within this company and we don't do that. So after that day, he stopped doing it. And you have to ask yourself, when you create content, when you write something, when you share something, did you know beforehand it's a good thing? Did you want to put it out or you accidentally but <laughs> dialed it and, and posted it? Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then delete that. But more often than not, you put something out there and what we're doing is we're hanging on the edge of our seats waiting for someone to validate us. Mm. And I don't think that's a very healthy thing to do. Yeah, you, You'll be chasing their opinion the rest of your life and you will not be any more confident today and, the, and by the time that you die, you'll be the exact same person. So I think what we have to do is have a much clearer internal compass to know what good is and what bad is and let that be our guiding principle. Can you tell us maybe something that you really failed at? How was that like and how did you get over that? Yeah, for me, one of my biggest failures is in, in, in business, that is, is that we started... He started a New York office based on the advice of his sales representatives who claimed they needed a presence there to secure more work. However, the experiment turned out to be a costly mistake. Chris learned the lesson that you cannot outsource or hire a team and expect them to replicate your core competencies without being physically present yourself. When he offered his team the opportunity to move to New York, nobody was interested, including himself. Consequently, the office lacked emotional and creative commitment, leading to a disconnect between the two locations. The attempt to hire out their core competency failed, and after years of struggling, Chris decided to shut down the New York office, realizing that it didn't bring in any additional work. He also notes that sales representatives tend to believe that any opportunity is beneficial, regardless of the financial costs. Ultimately, the decision to open the office lacked a rational game plan and commitment to the venture. So I would say to everybody, one, make sure before you make a big expensive decision like this, that is grounded in reality and that there's some a level of commitment from you and your team to make it work. Otherwise, you're going to just self-sabotage. It's not going to work. And then you're going to say, see, I knew it wasn't going to work. I think if we were to have a different relationship with ourselves, then in, in a healthier one where we looked at what we did as valuable and that we're learning machines full of curiosity and that we're going to ask questions and to, to learn to listen more with greater intention, I think it could benefit not only ourselves, but our personal and our professional relationships. One clue I want to give to every single person is this, is to learn to ask better questions and to speak a little bit less, especially when it comes to talking to clients. You want to learn about their business problem. You want to learn about what their values are and how they make decisions about the things that are going to matter in their lives and in their business. And if you can solve that problem, 
fantastic. And if you can't, walk away. It's okay. You can, you can hold yourself high with lots of respect and dignity by saying, you have a fantastic problem to solve. I think it's very valuable. It's just not one I feel comfortable or confident that I can actually deliver on and recommend someone else or just walk away. Totally okay to do that. Mm-hmm. PJ, can I share something with you? Yes. Yes, sure. Yeah. You know, um, in my, not this most recent trip, but on a, the last time I went to the Philippines mm-hmm. uh, before the pandemic, I was in Cebu and I was traveling with my friend Tom. He and Tom literally were hanging out the whole time, eating, traveling in the van, having a fireside chat. What he did was he pushed everybody to do dips and squats and everybody started groaning and complaining. But they did it. And the next day, nobody could even walk. And I was like, see, we we made a real breakthrough today. And I want to be able to share that kind of experience with other people. Believe it or not, Chris Doe is already 50 years old. You heard me, 5050. But I always tease my son, who's 17. I said, how is it that a man who's three times your age can do more physical things and is stronger than you? Pull yourself together, young man. And that's what I hope to be doing with people. So pushing them beyond their levels of comfort, way, way beyond to go into the deep unknown. And also to see um, somebody like myself, your quote unquote teacher, as just another human who struggles with everything as well. And so I'm really looking forward to that. It's, it's, it's going to be an awesome thing. To interview Christo felt more than just a typical discussion. It felt like a one-on-one coaching session with a mentor, to be honest. Even my co-producer, Brian, had a brief mentoring session after the interview, which we all can learn from. Listen. I have a challenge for you, Brian. Hold on. I'm going to put something over <laughs> my camera here. I hope you took notes because I remember Chris saying, when it's not on paper, it's vapor. That's right. <laughs> It's not a paper, it's vapor. So here's the challenge for you, Brian. If you consume a lot of content rather than create, totally fine. What I want you to do is I want you to say... His advice? Show up and engage online. To be thoughtful and genuine in doing so until they see you as a person and start to recognize your contribution as a thinker and be able to put ideas to a face. He goes on to share that he was able to build relationships with people that he thought he would never meet in a million years. But he's met them and even became friends with them. And it's like one of those pinch me moments like, how did I get here? What kind of fool who who is a refugee from Vietnam gets to meet these people that were my heroes, that are my heroes? And it's a wonderful feeling. So I want you to start doing that. But you can't do it if you're in the shadows, if you're invisible. The secret is to engage authentically and be consistent enough that people start to recognize you. I'm speaking from firsthand experience. PJ asked me before, how do I attract certain kinds of people? How do I hire people? Well, they're drawn to me. They offer ideas and help. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I can't can't ignore the kind of contributions that you're making. Uh, There's got to be a way for us to work together. And so it might not be right away, but eventually I connect the dots and we do something. So that's my challenge to you. (laughs) All right. Today is the good day to start. Okay. (laughs) Just post. Yeah. Post and we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Excellent. So don't don't let him off the hook. Okay, PJ? Yeah, I won't. (laughs) 
hope this interview with Chris inspired you as a creative entrepreneur. May it also remind you of the significance of teaching and empowering others along the way. So, embrace vulnerability. Have confidence in your unique strengths. And engage meaningfully with others. Because, as creatives, we can make a lasting impact and achieve extraordinary things together. If you enjoyed this episode, tell us by writing to us at tvp at visionarymedia.com. Engage with us on Facebook and Instagram. Love this? Why not write a review and share it with a fellow creative entrepreneur? This episode was written and produced by yours truly, edited and co-produced by Brian Bruces, and sponsored by Visionary Media. We create podcasts for visionaries. I'm PJ chong and this is the Visionary Podcast. Thank you and catch you on the next.